0: Coming to you from a cozy little condo, high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome Welcome. to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts.
1: And a good Thursday to you, wherever you may be listening, whether it's the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or the podcast platform of your preference. I do appreciate you tuning in. Today, the Supreme Court undid decades of at least an attempt to level the educational and employment playing field in these United States. The court, in its current makeup, tainted by imbalance done willfully and on purpose by filibuster during the Obama presidency, only to disavow that new precedence, thank you Mitch McConnell, under Donald Trump, never mind. The tainted electoral college with our congressional gerrymandered imbalances throughout these United States, netting a minority party at least two terms of the last eight not chosen by the will of the majority in these United States, despite losing seven of the last eight popular votes dating back to 1992. Instead, a two-third majority conservative Supreme Court exists for us to have to endure decisions like today. Today, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down affirmative action. At least the programs at the University of North Carolina and in Harvard, conservatives are hailing this as a major victory. The court ruling in that 6-3 conservative vein that both programs violate Equal Protection Clause in the U.S. Constitution and is therefore unlawful. But make no mistake, the U.S. Supreme Court did not get rid of all affirmative action. When you consider legacy students, students of parents who donated, those with recommendations, will still get those advantages. Those are advantages, by the way, that people of color and students with lineages that don't go very far back in these United States, for whatever reason, Don't enjoy. That's an affirmative action. That is an imbalance that the Supreme Court didn't touch. And in the case of Harvard University, by the way, they did a study that found that 43% of white students at Harvard are either legacy athletes related to donors or staff. Forty-three, Nearly half of the white students at Harvard University enjoyed some form of Affirmative action that did not get stricken down today by the U.S. Supreme Court. Earlier today, I spoke with Richard Rose, president of the Atlanta chapter of the NAACP, for his reaction via Zoom. Here's that conversation. Mr. Rose, thanks for joining the Ron Show.
0: You're quite well. Thank
1: you for inviting me. Mr. Rose, does today's Supreme Court decision surprise you in any way?
0: Well, it's not surprising. Uh, this court is now stacked with uh, people who, um, justices who don't recognize The realities of America, Mm. Uh, you know, starting with Clarence Thomas, who benefited all the way from affirmative action, uh, even to undergrad, graduate school, law school, uh, but still would deny those opportunities to uh, people who have grown up uh, under generational uh, poverty, generational oppression. So uh, it's a travesty for America.
1: What uh, sort of impact do you think will be seen and felt in the near term and then in the long term when it comes to uh, admission at the university level throughout the United States? Well, we we will probably go
0: back to the results of the 50s, you know, when there were very few people of color and in all of the institutions. Ironically, uh, this came about from uh, sued by Asian students who will also be affected now, and they... The Asian population of America has benefited from the civil rights movement uh, by Black people from the 50s and 60s. Hmm. And so uh, systemic oppression has the effect uh, when there are limited resources, then those uh, oppressed classes tend to uh, fight among themselves. Uh, so this is uh, the psychology of race is, is, so, uh, is coming into play in, with this decision and with this effort.
1: It's funny you mention that because I give the analogy often when uh, you have a, a kennel of abused and starved dogs and you throw enough food down for a few of them to live on, but not all of them. There's going to be a fight amongst them for the sustenance, for the sustainability. It's sort of sad to see that maybe playing out at this level. Do you think that there will be a positive impact for historically black colleges and universities as a result of this decision?
0: Well, I, th- I think that there will be uh, uh I think there should be a uh a, a positive effect because some of those students who were great students uh uh that, that will come back to black schools but if what I'm hoping is uh from a black community standpoint is that uh it affects uh not only uh those free premier- institutions Institution, but all majority white institutions, where athletes, black athletes, will decide that if uh, if we can't get a fair shake anywhere, uh, then I then I will take my talent somewhere else. Uh, mm-hmm. Basketball and football. I think I think the black community should respond uh, and by by rededicating themselves to uh, uplifting the institutions that have catered to them uh, since the late eighteen hundreds.
1: I understand your point. I also consider that in an athlete's state of mind, sometimes they could also maybe take the Clarence Thomas mindset of uh, "I'm I'm getting mine, and I'm not worried about anybody else." Does 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 that play? Do you think in the minds of some? I'm
0: sure that that plays. this already plays a part. Uh, But if we sensitivity level of consciousness uh, sometimes misses some people, but it gets to to the next person. So. Mm -hmm. You will have that, uh, but 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 you know it's no different from any other press class. I mean, we we saw world, you know the uh, World War II, where um, uh, members of the Jewish communities uh, sought to have favor with the Nazis, only to be subsequently uh, subjected to the same ill treatment. So mm-hmm. you will find that, and and as I said, the psychology of racism it's not new. Uh, and it's difficult, and it's involved, and it's multi-layered and
1: multifaceted. It's interesting you you brought up student athletes because I, I I'm thinking a lot about uh, Deion Sanders, who of course played football here in Atlanta, uh, Florida State graduate, went on to win multiple Super Bowl titles with other teams outside Atlanta, unfortunately. <laughs> but he also went to Jackson State University to essentially launch his college football coaching career and landed top athletes at that school before. The larger paycheck at the larger institution came a calling. Oh, I don't know that I really have a question for you about that. I just oh, thought okay. that, that <laughs> that's, just that's just something that came to my mind immediately uh, when, when you when you spoke to the African American community, maybe uh, embracing uh, HBCUs, uh, you know, more emphatically, and, and and even seeing some of the. Uh, the, the touted at student athletes who are being coveted at the major institutions going elsewhere as a result of this decision, is this decision going to become a political issue, an election issue? How 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 do politicians react to this in a way that would please the NAACP?
0: Well, of course, I can't speak for the entire NAACP. I can talk about what we what we think about in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. That is. Uh, uh, surely it will, it will affect our local politics. All politics is local. Uh, it will affect us as we look around to see, you know, how uh, politi- other politicians and I mean, candidates uh, will respond. You know, the University of Georgia already has a very low, except for athletes, a very low rate of Black student population. And mm-hmm. so uh, uh, hopefully uh, all of the, The black students will this will this will make us all think the young people think about where they're going, why they're going, what they expect to to uh, benefit from and how it affects the entire community.
1: We're with Richard Rose, president of the Atlanta NAACP. Sir, can you speak to the affirmative action that actually didn't get stricken down with today's Supreme Court decision, legacy admissions, connected admissions, things of that nature that actually do provide a disparate benefit?
0: And and that is probably one of the most egregious thing about it, and that is legacy admissions are discriminatory on their face. Mm-hmm. And so when you when the majority of the graduates of these uh, institutions are white, then when you add legacy on that, you ensure that the next majority, that they will continue a, 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 a predominant white institutions uh, who just have a sprinkle of graduates who who may. You know, have children who can uh, be admitted under the legacy provisions. Uh, it is a it is a very it's a horrendous decision from a horrendous court. I mean, you know, we, we just you know, last year the Dobbs decision it ignores the realities of America, the realities of race and class and economics uh, altogether.
1: I I would also argue that it ignores the history, the history that the conservative movement is seeking to bury by pushing back on uh, critical race theory, or even just teaching a true history of the United States when it comes to civil rights and uh, biases and codified uh, means for biases and oppression. Uh, to, 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 To keep legacy admissions on the table is to ignore the fact that for most of this nation's existence... There could be no legacy admission for people of color because there was no admission for people of color for most, uh, again, of these institutions in this nation's history.
0: Well, correct. And and when you look at Georgia, for example, the first public high school for black students was not open until 1924 right here in, mm-hmm. in Georgia. 1924, mm-hmm. uh, City of Atlanta opened Booker T. Washington High School, which was the only at that time, the only Uh, public high school for black students in the state. And so uh, from 1924, you know, what kind of legacy could be created uh, if you couldn't get to high school until 1924? Now, the fortunate thing is uh, HBCUs had high school components and that continued to uh, provide uh, opportunities for education from from the point of emancipation. Uh, Atlanta University, now Clark Atlanta University, for example, not only had a high school component; they had a an elementary school component, which is now Overthorpe School over uh, near the Atlanta University Center.
1: Well, also there's this. I mean, it wasn't until 1961 that an African American student was even allowed on the campus of the University of Georgia. There can be not much of a legacy when you can only go back, say, three generations, comparable right. to generations for white students.
0: Correct, uh, and and not only in Georgia, but you know you can multiply that across. I mean, we. We know about uh, Vivian Malone in Alabama, James Meredith in at Old Miss. and so that scenario can be played out over and over again. And North Carolina was one of the direct colleges, universities mm-hmm. and of course you know they didn't they wouldn't even let, uh, admit black athletes until the late 60s. Mm-hmm. So as you're right, that cannot be much of a legacy. Uh, it will continue to uh, punish black and brown people for being subject, subjected to chattel slavery.
1: Senator Richard Rose, Atlanta chapter of the NAACP, thanks for giving us your reaction to today's Supreme Court ruling.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
1: Speaking of the University of Georgia, there is a lot of smoke. Is there a fire a brewing? We'll discuss the football program and its culture of permissiveness. Does that exist? Back on the Ron Show after this on the America One Radio app, Radio.com or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to The Ron Show. Know this about me. I am a huge University of Georgia. Bulldog. Football. Baseball. Basketball. Golf. It could be tiddlywinks. Disc golf. I am a big old fan. Gymnastics. Loved it. Man, when Susan Yachlan was just knocking them down left and right, getting those national championships with the gymnastics program, I was in Stegman Coliseum seeing a lot of those meets. I'm a huge UGA guy. So I say this with a heavy heart and a lot of concern. What I'm seeing by what I believe is some stellar reporting from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution coming out of Athens severely troubles me. And it's just the AJC now. When it's 60 Minutes, when it's ESPN, then and only then, I suppose, will this become serious enough for someone to deal with it. I'm talking about this perception of a culture of permissiveness within the University of Georgia football program. And understand, there are already families grieving lost loved ones because of this perception of permissiveness. We all, of course, know about the tragic accident in Athens last January. The night after celebrating their second national championship. The result of an employee of the athletic department taking a vehicle rented out on the athletic department's behalf to take some of the players out for a night on the town after the celebration parade. Alcohol was involved, as was drag racing down a street. And I haven't even gotten to the sexual misconduct yet, but the AJC has. Even the headline itself, an accusation. UGA football program rallies when players accused of abusing women. And in that story, pieced together by Alan Judd at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, you hear stories of a 16-year-old recruit and his relationship of sorts with a 20-year-old woman. There's the player charged with rape whom Kirby Smart allegedly sent eight of his teammates to court to seek that player's release, for those players to speak on the accused's behalf. There's the guy who shows up from the athletic department anytime there's a player involved in a crime. Not an attorney, just a handler of sorts. The story starts... In a single weekend, a 16-year-old University of Georgia football recruit broke curfew, drank with potential teammates in an Athens bar, and ended up in a police station under investigation for sexual assault. Georgia signed him to a scholarship anyway. Second paragraph, the school's response to Jamal Jarrett's misadventures during a campus visit last year illustrates how its national champion football program rallies to support athletes accused of abusing women An investigation by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution shows, in case after case, the newspaper found strong on-field performance appears to excuse bad off-field behavior. It spoke to the Adam Anderson case I told you about, the rape charge. He eventually was dismissed from the team, but not after a good amount of character bolstering by teammates at the behest of the football coach, allegedly. Then there was a player charged with recording a sex act with an unconscious woman. That player remained on the roster for an entire season until he eventually transferred. The story goes on that others stayed with the team while accused of transgressions that ranged from threatening or attacking their girlfriends to outright sexual assault. I will repeat, I am a Georgia bulldog through and through. Red and black. From the day I can remember to the day I die. But I got to be honest with you. This is the sort of thing that used to plague the program when Mark Rick was the football coach. The story actually alludes to that. When Mark Rick was Georgia's head football coach from 2001 to 2015, he routinely dismissed players accused in sexual domestic assaults, including two in a single offseason. Some of those players went on to become key members of rival teams such as Alabama and Louisiana State. Rick also, also asked his wife and the wives of other coaches to speak to the team about respecting women. And he championed a rule adopted by the Southeastern Conference in 2015 that barred players who commit sexual or domestic violence from transferring between SEC schools. I remember all of this because as much as I love Coach Rick, the human being, the man was just constantly falling short of winning the big game, winning national championships. That's, that's the glass ceiling that he couldn't crack, that Kirby Smart now has twice. But at what cost? And back then, it seemed as if Athens-Clarke County Police cut no favors, gave no breaks to student-athletes at the University of Georgia. And now, the AJC in investigating a lot of these cases can't even come to a conclusion because Athens-Clarke PD winds up letting the university handle them through a secretive discipline program that no one ever finds out the conclusion of. To that end, the university did release the statement to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. It reads, The University of Georgia and Athletic Association consider any allegations of sexual assault or domestic abuse to be a very serious matter, and we take swift and appropriate action in response to allegations when warranted by law enforcement or internal investigations. This policy is applied universally across our university community to students, student athletes, staff, and personnel. Student athletes are subject to the exact same disciplinary process as other students, and in addition, face further athletic program disciplinary measures, which can include suspension and dismissal from the team. Let me go back to the article. But women who have alleged violent misconduct by football players during SMART's tenure say their cases reflect the skewed priorities of the team and its coaches amid unprecedented on-field success. Winning is their only objective. It's no longer about building guys up with good character. That is Jamal Jarrett's accuser in an interview. It's no longer about building a good work ethic. It's just about winning. I'll share this article in today's show notes at ronshowatl.com so you can see all of this for yourself. I'm literally skimming the surface. It is all about winning. In college athletics, no doubt about it. And, of course, money. Lots of money. I like winning. I like seeing my football program and its players standing under confetti cannons raining down on them at the last game of the season. But I don't believe that winning at all costs is worth it. There are body bags. There are filed-away sexual assault cases. Multiple former coach Mark Rick spoke about doing things the Georgia way. That's not the Georgia way. I like national championship trophies, but I also took pride in an ethical culture with my football program. and I can't say that right now. And it bothers me.
0: This is the Ron show on America one radio.
1: Bit of sad news to pass along today. The eldest surviving sibling of Martin Luther King jr. Willie Christine King Ferris passed away at the age of 95 she was an author and a teacher civil rights activist taught at spellman college she also obviously lived a life somewhat in the spotlight and with enough tragedy for a small army of people to have endured she had to deal with the unexpected death of her youngest brother ad king who died uh, in a drowning accident in 1969 her mother alberta williams king shot and killed inside the historic Ebenezer Baptist Church in 1974 and obviously her brother Martin assassinated in Memphis. Despite all those tragedies and the threats, she pioneered on anyway, well into her 80s. At the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington, she was asked to speak on her family's behalf and she did.
2: Thank you, President Obama and Mrs. Obama. President Clinton and Carter, other distinguished program participants. I am honored to be among you today and to address this historic gathering. I don't know if I am the most senior speaker to address this assembly today but I am certainly and surely the only person alive who knew Martin Luther King Jr. when he was a baby. It has been my great privilege to watch my little brother grow and thrive and develop into a fine man and then a great leader whose legacy continues to inspire countless millions around the world. Unfortunately, about with a flu virus 50 years ago prevented me from attending the original March, but I was able to watch it on television, and I was as awestruck as everyone else. I knew Martin was an excellent preacher because I had seen him deliver on many occasions. But on that day, Martin achieved greatness because he melded the hopes and dreams of millions into a grand vision of healing, reconciliation, and brotherhood. The dream my brother shared with our nation and world on that sweltering day of days 50 years ago, continues to nurture and sustain nonviolent activists worldwide in their struggles for freedom and human rights. Indeed, this gathering provides a powerful testament of hope and proof positive that Martin's great dream will live on in the heart of humanity for generations to come. Our challenge then as followers of Martin Luther King Jr. is to now honor his life, leadership, and legacy by living our lives in a way that carries forward the unfinished work. There is no better way to honor his sacrifices and contributions than by becoming champions of nonviolence in our homes and communities, in our places of work, worship, and learning everywhere every day. The dream Martin shared on that day a half century ago remains a definitive statement of the American dream, the beautiful vision of a diverse, freedom-loving people united in our love for justice, brotherhood, and sisterhood. Yes, They can slay the dreamer, but no, they cannot destroy his immortal dream. But Martin's dream is a vision not yet to be realized, a dream yet unfilled, and we have much to do before we can celebrate the dream as a reality as the suppression of voting rights and horrific violence that has taken the lives of Trayvon Martin and young people all across America. has so painfully demonstrated. But despite the influences and challenges we face, we are here today to affirm the dream we are not going to be discouraged we are not going to be distracted we are not going to be defeated instead we are going forward into this uncertain future with courage and determination to make the dream a vibrant reality and so the work to fulfill the dream goes on and despite the daunting challenges we face on the road to the beloved community, I feel that the dream is sinking deep and nourishing roots all across America and around the world. May it continue to thrive and spread and help bring justice, peace, and liberation to all humanity. Thank you, and God bless you all.
1: Ten years ago, that was Willie Christine King Ferris, older sister of Martin Luther King Jr. Miss King Ferris passing away today at the age of 95. An interesting uh, day of notes that Dr. King's older sister passes on a day that the Supreme Court sheds this country of affirmative action with regard to college and university admissions. Notably here in Georgia, as the University of System of Georgia released in a statement today, at all 26 university system of Georgia institutions, race or ethnicity is not a determining factor in admissions. USG follows the law with regards to the admission of students. They uh, released that statement after the Supreme Court decision was announced. Race actually had been used as an admission criteria um, anywhere from like 10 to 15% of the system's enrollment until 2000. And uh, that is back when uh, UGA lost a court battle. Uh, Three white women were denied admission and they sued the university saying that their policy was discriminatory. So the school in 2001 began not fighting that court decision. Right now, about 35% of the University of Georgia's students last fall were non-white. By the way, the state of Georgia's population is 59% white or 41% non-white. So even there you can see... And underrepresentation just at the University of Georgia. This decision will have repercussions here locally because we, of course, in Atlanta, have the Atlanta University Center schools. For example, Morehouse anticipates double the number of applicants in the coming years. Morehouse will be challenged with. Accommodating as many students as possible with the resources that exist currently. The problem is the underfunding of historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs, makes that accommodation challenging. Morehouse has about 2,200 students. And according to Morehouse representatives, it could grow by up to 1,000 students without affecting the quality of students admitted. They admit, though, that there's a challenge in that Morehouse and other HBCUs don't have the staff, faculty, facilities to accommodate much larger increases. While they could grow up to 1,000 students, the assertion at Morehouse is they'd be better served by adding another 300 students. Also of note, just from a strictly demographical point of view, you look at the racial demographics within the university system of Georgia on the whole, and you have 44.8% of the student population in the state being white. And so there are those who have fought affirmative action because they believe that the white population is being underserved and they're not wrong. 53.2% of the state identifies as white, according to recent census data, and only 44.8% of the university system's population is white. But they're not losing out to black or Hispanic students. 32.3% of the state identifies as African American, non-Hispanic. 25.2% inside the university system. So it's not people of color. It's It's not black students. Uh, What about Hispanic or Latino? 10.5% of the state's population and 11% of the university. So pretty much dead on there. So who are the white students losing out to? Well, 5.2% of the state's population identifies Asian. In the university system, it's 12.5%. But there's no argument to be made from white students losing out to Asian applicants. Why is that? Is it simply because Asian students overperform academically comparatively to their demographic portion of the state's population? And if that is the case, and yet the state still underrepresents students of color, Hispanic American students, then why was it so important? And again, this is these are just Georgia statistics. But I'm asking, again, why was it so important for conservatives to strike down affirmative action exactly? And I am by no means suggesting that any college or university within the University System of Georgia needs to curtail its Asian student population to meet demographic norms? No, I'm not suggesting that at all. I'm just curious why only the admission of black or brown students concerns a mostly white conservative political movement. That being said, look for local and state leaders, particularly on the left, to start clamoring for more state funds, more federal dollars, to aid HBCUs in metro Atlanta and throughout the state of Georgia. They're going to need them. They're going to need them more than ever. And of course, you'll hear complaints from the right about that as well. It's a damned if you do, damned if you don't, scenario with them. But then it almost always is, right? That's when we'll put a pin in. Uh, One more segment to go. I do want to point out tomorrow I am going to be uh, traveling down to Augusta to appear on a conservative talk show. I've mentioned uh, a few times that uh, Austin Rhodes, host of uh, a local show back in Augusta, Georgia, has... Sort of been in my ear a good bit about doing this, that I needed to do it. Should have done it a long time ago. He said, blah, 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 blah. And, uh, listens to this show, if not daily, quite frequently, enough that I get texts from him when he disagrees with me. Like, um, I guess I give some carte blanche. He's got, he's got the, he's got the hotline number. <laughs> anyway, he asked me to come be on his show tomorrow. So I said, um, okay, why not? Let's do it. Cool. So, uh, I will be on, um, in fact, I'll put it in today's show notes. You'll get a link at ronshowatl.com. Tomorrow's show notes as well, because I'm going to go ahead and put today's show to bed. So you're going to get, what are you getting? You're getting, oh, Governor Pritzker's commencement speech at Northwestern. It's a gem. Can't wait to share that with you. Uh, (laughs) He goes on this uh, little riff about uh, how easy it is to spot an idiot. Spoiler alert, it's usually the person in the room that's cruelest, or it's someone who's cruel. I just thought it was a, a great commencement speech and uh, worthy of sharing. So uh, I will give that to you tomorrow. And, and in tomorrow's show notes, I'll give you a listen link so that you can uh, tune in if you like to hear me. I don't know if I'm sparring. I don't know. I don't know what we're doing. I really don't know the agenda, but I, I will be on a conservative uh, FM AM talk show in my hometown of Augusta, Georgia tomorrow. So there's that. I'm also having lunch with like my super bestest friend, Sonia, who I think listens to this podcast, but probably, Anyway, that's uh, that's on the agenda for tomorrow. One more segment to go back after this on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com or via podcast. Welcome back. Final segment of the Ron Show for Thursday. And I don't know about y'all, but boy, am I glad Hunter Biden isn't running for re-election in 2024. Wait, what? We never elected him? My God. He's been the focus of the GOP for many, many years now. And you're, you're hearing a lot of talk about the sure thing that... This conspiracy is that President Biden gave his son preferential treatment through the Department of Justice and Merrick Garland. There's an IRS whistleblower, blah, blah, blah. What there isn't is actual tangible evidence, however. A lot of, well, I heard and, well, what I saw, okay, but where's the evidence? And this all centers around Hunter Biden and his role when he was an employee with Burisma, Ukrainian company you've heard of many times by now. Well, today, Congressman Jamie Raskin sent a letter to Republican James Comer sharing the transcript of statements made by Mykola Zlochevsky. That guy is the owner of this Ukrainian energy company called Burisma Holdings. Anyway, uh, Mykola Zlochevsky gave these statements to an associate of Rudy Giuliani. Mm -hmm. Uh, And by the way, these statements, unfortunately for the GOP, directly contradict allegations repeated over the last uh, four or five years now. Republican committee members identified Mr. Zlojewski as the source of the information relayed to the FBI by a confidential human source in Form FD-1023. See, as part of the 2019 impeachment inquiry against then-President Donald Trump, the committee received a transcript created by associates of Rudy Giuliani, recording statements by Mr. Zlochevsky that squarely rebut the Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, millions under the table, allegations. Amy Raskin sent the letter with the transcript and wrote in that letter, despite being interviewed as part of a campaign by Mr. Giuliani and his proxies in 2019 and 2020 to procure damaging information about the Biden family, Mr. Zlochevsky explicitly and unequivocally denied those allegations. Specifically, Mr. Zlochevsky denied one, that anyone at Burisma had quote, any contacts with then former Vice President Biden, or his representatives, while Hunter Biden served on the Burisma board, and two, that former Vice President Biden or his staff, quote, in any way assisted assisted Mr. Zlochevsky or Burisma. Again, that was a letter that Congressman Jamie Raskin sent to Congressman James Comer, along with the transcript, a transcript that read, question, please detail any contacts you had with VP Joe Biden and his office from 2013 through 2019. Did Hunter ever facilitate any of those contacts? Mr. Zolodziewski, no one from Burisma ever had any contacts with VP Biden or people working for him during Hunter Biden's engagement. That, ladies and gentlemen, that statement is just as evidentiary as anything the GOP has as, aha, gotcha, we've got it. They have nothing physical. There's no paper trail. There's nothing that sheds a light on the accusations that they're claiming. The impeachment proceedings that they are chomping at the bit to go in on Joe Biden for. Listen, I'm the first to say, when the evidence shows itself, when it's irrefutable, I'm listening. I am. We all know Hunter Biden is something of a up. But he's also the son of Joseph Robinette Biden, who's already lost two children prematurely. Joe Biden loves his kids, loves his family, And we're seeing a relentless assault on his son who was traumatized at a young age by surviving a car accident that his mother and one of his siblings didn't. Yes, he's a drug addict. Yes, he has his issues. Absolutely no doubt about it. And what we're seeing is a father who also happens to be president of the United States, who is rebuking even what his inner circle is saying to do. Distance yourself from Hunter. And Joe is saying, no, this is my son. I want him by my side. Remember when Fox News and Sean Hannity thought they had it, that they had, oh, this is this is the audio. This is the coup de grace. This is the nail in the coffin. This is going to cement Joe Biden as a corrupt man. Standard. Call to tell you I
0: love you. I love you more than the whole world, pal. Can I gotta get some help. I don't know what to do. I know you don't either.
1: Really? That's the gotcha. <laughs> oh my gosh. How horrible. We've elected a president who's a loving father of their child no matter what. Oh my God. That's despicable. That is repugnant. Counter that with what we know about Donald Trump, the father of Ivanka. Miles Taylor is the former Trump administration official who wrote a scathing op-ed about the former president under the anonymous pseudonym. He's an upcoming book called Blowback, a warning to save democracy from the next Trump. Newsweek got some excerpts of that book and some of what they got pretty revolting. These incidents included, according to the book, claims by aides that Trump made lewd comments about his daughter Ivanka's appearance and talked about, quote, what it might be like to have sex with her, which prompted a rebuke from John Kelly, his then chief of staff. Like I said, show, show me the evidence. Like I see physical evidence, indisputable evidence. I am all in on taking down the Biden crime syndicate. But I also want to see the Jared Ivanka billions dollar money scheme, also heavily investigated by the very same people. I mean, I think it's only fair. You're talking about $8 million from a Ukrainian business or the Chinese? What about the billions snagged by Jared and Ivanka from Saudi Arabia? This is yet another opportunity for the GOP to stiff arm assertions of hypocrisy, rid itself of the Trump scourge, and win over independence in the process just in time for the 2024 cycle. I'm just saying it's out there for you, kids. That's it for The Ron Show. Back tomorrow, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast.